You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. This is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and the Future Tech Health Podcast, and I have Dr. Adam Nally. Um, he's an author of a book called The Keto Cure. He's uh, got a website called Doc Muscles, and I saw him in person. He does have a lot of muscles. Um, good looking. He looks like he's pretty healthy. <laughs> I met him uh, recently at the Metabolic Health Summit, where he was a speaker, and he did a book signing and everything, and uh, you know, I'm looking forward to talking to you today, Adam, so thanks for coming. Oh, thanks for having me, Richard. I appreciate it. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about your journey and your history. It seems like you know everyone in the uh, that has interest in the keto diet in this field has a personal story. So what's your background? Um, well, I've, I've been practicing medicine for about 20 years. Um, I've been in private practice about 18 years. Um, I'm in the northwest corner of Phoenix, uh, the, well, a suburb called Surprise. Uh, we're in the northwest hmm. corner of the valley. Um, I uh, uh, hung my shingle in family medicine about 20, 20 years ago, 18 years ago. And I've been practicing since then. Um, the big challenge that that I found is that um, you know my family, my family history, all had some significant um, issues with, with diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, and and um, you know general uh, problems of metabolic syndrome. For those that understand what that is, um, and um, I coming out of medical school, doing what I was taught to do in school wasn't working for me or my patients. Um, my father ended up weighing almost 400 pounds and passing away. Uh, at age 58, from uh, after mm-hmm. having five five vessels in his heart bypassed, and three of those got stented, and he was on 150 units of insulin and 32 pills a day. And the challenge is, my labs and his labs looked identical in our early 30s, and um, and so my big concern was, you know, restricting calories and exercising my brains out wasn't wasn't working for me, and it didn't work for most of my patients. It worked for a small percentage, but not not for most of them. And one day, finally. Yeah, quite, quite- Go ahead. Quick, yeah. Quick question in there. When you say it didn't work, what what were some of the hallmarks that showed you it wasn't working? Just out of curiosity. Well, I'm, I mean, I was in the military, so we were running and 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 you know exercising and trying to maintain a, a level of fitness. Yet I still had a you know I was still 65 pounds overweight. Um, my triglycerides, which should normally be under 100, were at for almost 450. Um, I was pre-diabetic, and and so. You know, even though I was exercising five, six days a week, and I was cutting my calories down to you know fifteen hundred or twelve hundred a day, I was always hungry, and the weight would not come off. And and my numbers 
kept progressing down the road of, of you know, pre-diabetes and this insulin resistance issue. And I kept seeing this pattern over and over with my patients that were seeing the same thing. Um, you know, the, one of my patients came to me uh, who followed me through residency into my practice. And about five years in, she said to me, you know, doctor, I've been seeing you for eight years. And for every year I've seen you, you've given me a new pill. And, you know, I was, I was actually prescribing her eighth pill, it happened to be a cholesterol pill that time. And, and so that really bothered me. That's what, that's what drove me nuts. And so I started looking for answers for myself and for my patients, you know, realizing that, you know, what, what I was taught in the traditional school just was not effective. And, um, ended up coming across the um, Obesity Medicine Association, which at the time was called the um, American Society of Bariatric Physicians, um, and uh, started doing some training there. They had a fellowship, and they also had a, 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 um, a, a board certification program. So I started looking into obesity as an issue and um, found that there were really two two camps. There was the low-fat camp and the low-carb camp. And so I started reading really heavily, trying to understand what exactly is the, you know, what, 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 what really works. What's, what, you know, there's these two camps and both, both people you know, hold to their dogma almost religiously. And so you know, which one is actually effective? And I had gone down the low fat camp and the calorie restriction camp, and I found that's not effective mm. for myself or 85% of the population. So, and in school, we were told that this low carb thing, this Adkins thing was just a bunch of hogwash and was going to kill people. And, um, and so I said, well, I, you know, this, this group of people are showing these tremendous results. I, if I, I'm going to try it. So I tried it. And in fact, you know, um, started, I told my wife, I'm going to stop exercising because that's most of my patients weren't exercising. I'm going to start eating a pound <clears> of sausage <throat> and three eggs cooked in butter every morning. And I lost 65 pounds in six months doing that. And that just blew, wow. me, blew me away. You know, if you, I, when I, I, when I added up my caloric intake, I was taking in between three and 5,000 calories a day and I lost weight. And so that, that, that showed me right there. It, this is not a calorie thing. There's there's something different going on here. And so um, because it was effective and because it was working, I thought if, if this is if this works and I and I'm going to use it, I have to be I have to understand the science behind it. And nobody could tell me why that was the case. So I started researching, you know, about 15 years ago, what exactly happens when I take the carbohydrate out of my diet or my patient's diet. And I and so for the last 15 years, I just started studying and reading as much as I could about that. Um, in all the journals and everything, and eventually got to the point where I had this plethora of information about, you know, the 38 or 39 different hormones that our bodies use to control our weight and how food has a very, very powerful influence on our hormonal um, orchestra in our body. And depending on the type of foods we're putting in there, it will dramatically change your health. And um, and what we've been told about fat was wrong. And so, um over, I uh, started blogging about it and, and did a podcast with Jimmy Moore for about a year and a half about it and um, ended up having all this. I, ha I had an outline for a book in my head and said, I'm going to, I got to put this on a book. So I told Jimmy, I said, Hey, Jimmy, I've got this outline. And he said, well, why don't you write it out? And then I'll do some side commentary with it and we'll get Maria Emmerich to do some um, uh, recipes for it. And so uh, we, 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 we published the keto cure. Um, and basically that, that book is, is, uh, essentially, my practice experience over 15 years of taking starches and sugars out of the diet and giving people back fat and protein um, as their primary fuels. And so that's really what it came down to. Okay. And there are 16 diseases that respond really well to that approach. And so that we talk about those diseases and, and how to approach each of them. Can you go a, a little bit more in depth to the common knowledge about, you know, blood sugar and even insulin? You know, most people just seem to focus only on blood sugar and they're trying to control that. Then you get a bit more sophisticated. You look at, you know, perhaps reducing your insulin, but can you maybe start there and then go a little bit deeper into the mechanisms that cause us to have metabolic syndrome and 
leads to diabetes and everything else. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the when I came out of school, the the kind of the, the underlying understanding that was taught was, well, if you eat sugar, your your glucose goes up, and then your body produces insulin, and the insulin brings the glucose down. And so we 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 blamed a lot of our our um, uh, our, our problems with diabetes on uh, you know uh, people are just uh, if you just keep your sugar at a certain level, you'll be fine. Well. Over the years, as, as they've done multiple studies and shown that when you keep your sugar at a certain level, you still don't stop the progression of diabetes and you still don't stop the, the, the secondary effects like macular degeneration and cataracts and kidney damage and neuropathy that arise and, and heart disease and hypertension from this diabetes, diabetic issue. And so for those that don't understand what metabolic syndrome is, metabolic syndrome is not necessarily uh, diabetic, but abnormally elevated fasting blood sugars over 100. Uh, with the presence of either obesity, um, hypertension, or high cholesterol, and it's usually three of those. The three of those create a syndrome. Three of the four, and so if you have three of those four things, you have what's called metabolic syndrome. Um, and so people say, well, just control your blood sugar. You know, eat a little less sugar and you'll be fine. But that doesn't stop the progression of those issues. And what I started seeing a pattern on, and what started, what was fascinating to me, was that um, uh, insulin was b between two and 25 or 30 times higher than it ought to be in a type two diabetic. And I started seeing those same insulin patterns 15 and 20 years before people ever became diabetic. Um, where type one diabetes is an absence of insulin, type two diabetes is this tremendous overproduction of insulin in response to a starch. So for instance, if I eat a piece of bread, theoretically, I should produce a slice worth of insulin to absorb the sugar in that bread. But if you give me a piece of bread, I'll produce 10 times the insulin in response to that bread within two hours. And insulin stays around and lingers for up to 12 hours. And so what we find is that insulin, insulin's major driver is to, is to bring the sugar down. But insulin also has a whole other set of, of jobs. It, it turns on the production of cholesterol. It, it causes the body to retain water and raises the blood pressure. It actually raises the cholesterol numbers. It actually stimulates. It has this huge, powerful effect on the fat cell, causing the fat cell to absorb fat that's nearby. So for 12 hours, if I'm producing 10 times the insulin in response to a piece of bread, I'm going to store fat as if I ate the whole loaf for 12 hours straight. Um, and so that's what was happening. Is, and that's why people, when they came to my office, said, Dr. Ali, if I walk by the bakery, I gain weight. And I went, yeah, I, I'm with you. I get that. Because you hmm. produce this huge amount of insulin in response to just a very simple piece of bread. And, and that started to explain why people would have such gargantuan weight gains when they were not eating much more or often eating less than people who were right next to them very slender. And so it's a hormonal response, not a caloric response. And so it relates, number one, to insulin. And so for many years, we thought, well, it's this insulin issue. Insulin really is the primary hormone. And what I found in my practice is that you have to control insulin first. It, it has to be corrected first. If you don't correct insulin, no matter what you do for weight, you're not going to be successful in the long run. 80% um, of people will regain, regain all or more of their weight um, uh, after two years of a weight loss program. And, and it's related to the way this body, the body responds to insulin. Well, when you understand that your body's overproducing it and you can control that just by limiting the starch in your body, all of a sudden the weight falls right off. And, and people see tremendous success with that. And that's what I saw. And, and just, just by lowering the starch in the body. Now, that's step one of a number of steps, but, but that's the biggest step. And, and just by doing that in my practice, we've reversed over 50 cases of diabetes. And um, in fact, I just had a lady today that we, we took diabetes off her chart today because she's no longer diabetic. Um, nice. but by the definition of diabetes, it's really cool.
is there a way, I mean, I know with blood work in the lab, you can get your insulin measured, but there are glucometers. Are there insulin meters that you can wear or there's no such thing yet? Unfortunately, the, the, in, the insulin assay is really, really expensive and it's, it's hard to get. So they don't have a monitor yet for insulin, but we can extrapolate what your insulin is by checking the um, kind of the, the alternate fuel of, of glucose or blood sugar, uh, which is a ketone. So what we started finding a few years ago is that if we bring your, your glucose down, and your insulin starts to fall, you'll actually see gluc uh, ketone levels start to rise up. So when the fat's broken into two parts, uh, essentially to be used as fuel, it's broken into ketones, which is beta-hydroxybutyrate, acetoacetate, and acetone, which are the three ketones that our body can use as fuel. Well, as the ketone level starts to rise, we know that insulin level's dropping. And so you, you can extrapolate that if your ketone levels are coming up, that your insulin's falling. And so most people will, will look at their blood sugar and they'll look at their ketones. And based on those two numbers, they can make a fairly fairly good guesstimate about where their insulin is at most in m many cases not all but many and so there's unfortunately there, there is no um insulin assay without drawing blood work but but you can you can kind of assess it from the back door i guess if you say it that way so um do you have any patients that wore or used to wear their continuous glucose monitor and was that able to be helpful to them or is that really not useful at all um, you know, well, you know, I, I have uh, I have I have type one diabetics that use a continuous glucose monitor, so for them it's very helpful. And I've got some that do a, a continuous glucose monitor just to see what different foods are doing and different stress responses and, and different forms of activity due to their glucose. Um, and so those that that's helpful for some people to to look at. But what what you really have to understand is that just monitoring the glucose alone doesn't always give you a, a good picture of what's happening with the insulin. Um, because you may have, you know, only a few, you know, 20 to 30 point rise in your glucose, but if your insulin's spiking 20 times higher than than it should, uh, that 20 point rise in glucose is gonna is gonna be astronomical in regards to weight gain and, and cholesterol rise. Um, and so, so the, the continuous monitors are helpful to help people kind of understand what's happening throughout their day and their general routine. But it, but, but um, it, it doesn't really give you the full picture. So I, I don't always use, I don't use them very often in my office. Um, I, I have some patients that love them and I've got a few, it's usually the engineers and the accountants that love those because they, they love to you know, write their oh, numbers sure, down yeah. and, and track those. And so I'll have some great patients come in with literally 40 pages of, of continuous glucose monitoring numbers saying, look what, the, look what, the, look what I'm seeing. And really what I, what we want to see is, okay, what's your glucose doing when your insulin's doing this? And so you want to be able to compare both of those. Uh, so the, so I don't find them to be tremendously helpful unless, uh, unless we're first starting out trying to understand what's happening with glucose. So that correlation is hidden, insulin versus, you know, glucose in your, um, in your body. So some people may have, you know, you could have two equivalent people with a glucose of, let's say, 100. One could have, you know, 10 times the insulin the other person, and you would never know it, and the, the uh, background glucose doesn't change for either of them. Yeah. Uh, well, the, the background glucose, the glucose will change. Well, the, well, let me, let me give you an example. And in, in myself, in myself individually, um, like some days I will check my blood sugar and my blood sugar first thing in the morning will be 101. Um, normally it should be under 100. I'm, I'm insulin resistant, so I produce a little extra glucose first thing in the morning. Um, and so my blood sugar will be 101. Now, some days I'll have a blood sugar of 101, um, but my ketone level will be 0.3. Um, and other days I'll have a blood sugar of 101 or 102 and my ketone level will be 1.5. So that, that 101, that, that blood sugar doesn't always tell you what your insulin's doing in that moment. Um, it really relates to what you had two hours ago in your meal, how, how high that insulin spiked and where the blood sugar was prior to that in relationship to the insulin. So if I ate some, some really sugary food the night before and my blood sugar spiked overnight, 
and then my blood sugar fell and my insulin fell, I may have a, a blood sugar of 101, but because my insulin was so high, I have no ketones in my body and my ketone levels are 0.2 or 0.3. But let's say I was, let's say I, I ate really well and I, you know, didn't eat anything for about 12 hours and my blood sugar was about, you know, 101 or 100 that, that morning because I exercised just a little bit or I was a little, I was under some stress. Um, but my body was mainly using ketones as its primary fuel. My blood, my blood ketone level may be up around 1.1. And, and so, so in that case, the blood sugar is the, the brain, all the brain wants is the brain wants that blood sugar to be somewhere between 70 and hundred. That's what the brain wants. And the brain's happy with that. And the liver knows that. So the liver is going to try to keep that blood sugar somewhere between 70 and hundred and keep your brain happy. As long as it's doing that, the the rest of the body may either be using glucose or it may be using ketones. Um, and insulin is what dictates whether your body's using the glucose or using the ketones. So your body, your liver is going to do everything it can to, to maintain that blood sugar at kind of a balanced range. And then insulin and a number of other body hormones are telling your body whether to use the glucose that, at that moment or use ketones at that moment. And so the continuous monitor although helpful in understanding what different foods are doing to you, doesn't really tell you the background information about, are you, is your body using glucose at that moment or is it using fat at that moment? That hopefully that's okay, interesting. clear. Yeah. So it's just not a very good proxy. I see what you mean. From, for, for, so, so for looking at insulin, no, it's not. So what's your protocol with patients to, you know, get them in better shape? Is it tiered or do you say, Hey, you got to just go keto and, uh, you know, cut out the sugar and cut out the carbs right away all in one or there are stages that you take them through? Well, you know, each, it really it depends heavily on, on if there's other disease processes that are going on. If I've got somebody who's diabetic and he was on insulin, I'm going to probably tear it down so I can start weaning off his insulin and not cause him to you know, crash. So, so in that regard, we will, we'll look to see, okay, how much insulin is he using and, and what do we need to do to bring the diet down? So we'll, we'll bring the carbs down slowly to let him start to wean off that insulin. So we don't cause him to bottom out and have episodes of hypoglycemia, glycemia, and things like that. If I've got somebody who's not diabetic um, or who's not dependent on insulin, but they may be either diabetic or pre-diabetic. The very first thing I do is I, I explain to them kind of what we, we've talked about, about the insulin and say, okay, you've got to cut your carbs down. And I usually use a, a, a number of about 20 grams per day. And I give them a six page handout of diet that I've written and, and say, this is the diet I want you to follow. This is what I want you to do. I want you to bring your carbs down to here. We, we calculate up their needed protein that they need each day and give them a, a range of fat that they should be having. And then we say, okay, this is where we want you to go. And I, I and I, some people, their goal is not necessarily weight loss. If, if your goal is weight loss, about 99.9% .9 of the time, you, you have to lower your carbs to less than 20 grams a day, but you're not going to see effective long-term weight loss. Um, if somebody just says, doc, I'm here to, to lower my cholesterol and my blood pressure, I can often modulate that by keep, keeping people's carbs under about 20 or 30 grams per meal. And so, so it really, number one, depends on the goal. Number two, it depends on if there's other disease processes that are going on and where we want to put them at uh, with those, that carb content. But the first step, number one, is, is really lowering the intake of starch and sugar so that we can get that insulin level down to where it needs to be. Now, if I have somebody who's only minimally insulin resistant, they may not have to restrict carbs very much and they'll still see weight loss. But I have others that are very insulin resistant, meaning they're producing 30 times the normal insulin response to a piece of bread. Those people, I really have to tighten down their carbs to get that weight to move. And so that that's uh, that, that's kind of it. It's really it's not it's not a one size fits all. We, we, we do tailor it to, to the patient's needs and their goals. Well, you say you're insulin resistant. So do you think it's a permanent condition if it goes on for long enough? Or does it take years and years to fix it? I mean, what's your impression? Well, well, what I see is I see I see people. Um, it takes about two years to really truly correct the pancreas's response back to normal. 
Um, and, and so if I cheat or things of that nature, I'll see my sugar stay higher slightly for a period of time. Um, but then as, if I'm, if I'm real good, I'll, my, my fasting sugars will be in the eighties and nineties. And so, um, that, that, so, but it took, it, it seems to take it somewhere between 18 to 24 months to reverse the insulin resistance issues. Now, if you're a full two, type two diabetic, it seems to take about two years of, of a ketogenic diet to get that pancreas to, to ramp back up and start functioning normally again. And the reason is that there are at least eight different hormones that are produced by the fat cell that have a, a significant influence on the liver and the pancreas on how that glucose and glucagon balance works to, to regulate that blood sugar for the brain. And um, so as the fat cell shrinks, we start to see less and less hormone produced by the fat cells. And that, that insulin resistance, that higher insulin in response to a slightly elevated blood sugar begins to decline. And by about the second year, it's gone. Now, the issue is that insulin resistance is a syndrome. It's not a disease. So it's a genetic uh, response that we see to, um, you know, to, to, to people's um, uh, bodies. And, and I really, truly think it was more of a protective mechanism for people that lived um, either in snow or, or in various areas uh, where they didn't have access to carbs a lot of the time. Uh, and so it, I think it's really a, a genetic protection um, for people who lived in the desert or people who lived, lived in the snow and never saw starches and sugars, if that makes sense. Do you have patients that, um, I don't know if this even makes sense, but they'll go low carb, but they still have a bunch of sugar or they'll cut out sugar, but they'll stay uh, normal carb. And will that be effective for them? Um, for a, for a small few handful. Yes. Um, you know, but in my mind, you're not low carb unless you're, you know, I, I define low carb as, as someone who's cut their starches and sugars under a hundred grams per day. Um, that's, that's low carb. Uh, the problem is that if you eat a potato, that's 25 grams, half a potato is 25 grams of sugar. If you eat the whole potato, that's, that's half your carbs for the day. Um, you know, a piece of bread is 20 grams of starch, a banana is 30 grams of starch or sugar. And so, so if you had, you know, a piece of banana, a piece of bread and a potato, you've, you're not low carb, I guarantee it. Um, so, so just cutting out the sugar for most people is not effective. Um, if you truly want it from, from the perspective of weight loss, now from the perspective of improving cholesterol levels and um, general blood pressure control, uh, for a lot of, for a lot of people that, that might be enough to do it. Um, you know, very low carb is considered less than 50 grams of carbohydrate per day. And, and ketogenic is considered less than 20 grams of carbohydrate per day. And that's kind of where, where I, I put people. And so it's not just the sugar, although some, some docs say, oh, it's just the sugar. If you cut out you know, high fructose corn syrup, you'll solve the problem. That's not what I see clinically. And I haven't seen that clinically for 15 years. I, we truly, in order to reverse the, the insulin resistance syndrome and diabetes, if it's there, we really truly have to bring those carbohydrate levels down to very low carb or ketogenic in a state to see success. That's what I was going to ask you is if someone's either lazy or they just, they just, they have a really hard time doing it, but they get close, you know, they reduce their sugars, they reduce their carbs, but they don't get down to 20, maybe 50, 60, something like that. Have you seen that they still can experience a lot of positive effects, but they'll be limited or what's your experience there? And again, it really depends on the person's genetics and how much insulin they're producing in response to those sugars. If, if they're not horrendously insulin resistant, you know, I, I see guys that say, doc, I just cut out soda and I cut out you know, all the sweets. Um, and I lost, you know, 25 pounds and I feel great. And, and so I do see that, but I, but then there are those that, that did the exact same thing. It's often the spouse says, you know, he just stopped drinking his soda pop and, and stopped eating, um, sweets and he lost 20 pounds and I did the same thing and I, and I didn't lose any weight. And so, um, but the, the, generally if you're cutting out the simple sugars, you will see less inflammation. 
you'll see a little bit improved energy. You'll see some some improvement in sleep, um, but you, it doesn't always solve the problem. And so um, you, if you're one of those lucky guys that genetically doesn't produce a huge amount of insulin, that may be all you need to do. Um, but uh, for, for the for the majority of the people that walk through my doors, about 85% of them, that doesn't work. And we really, truly have to tighten it down further. Um, so, so can you get benefit from even, you know, Partial carbohydrate restriction, absolutely, uh, you will. Uh, but but will it, will it reverse disease? No, that's not what I've seen clinically. Yeah, and I guess it's disheartening when some people feel like they have to be super strict in order to uh, have a positive effect, while others seem to do nothing and they have a positive effect. Well, you know, I've been doing this for 15 years, and and in my mind, super strict is you know, I get to eat bacon and cheese and ribeyes, and and that to me that's like glorious. I you know I. I I can help kill bosses and sausages. And I mean, I, I don't feel like it's a, it's a, I don't have to be strict at all. I mean, I, I and after you do this for a few weeks, the cravings for bread and, and starches are gone for most people. So they, in fact, the lady that came in today said, I love this diet. This is an easy diet to do. Now, if you're heavily carb addicted, you're going to go through some withdrawals and it might not be easy in the first month in that regard. But, but most people that work with me tell me, I love this diet. It's easy. I, I'm, I'm full. I get to eat food that still tastes good. It doesn't taste like cardboard. Um, and so they, they, and they find that they're own they, because of what the fat and protein do to the body, they're very satiating. They find they're only eating once or twice a day just because they're always full. So it's actually, a, it's actually, it's not hard if you're doing it right. Well, I was going to ask you about like outlier cases. Like, you know, for instance, myself, I didn't get to a keto state, but I, uh, I probably was like pretty low carb, really, really low sugar. And I was eating, you know, steaks and bacon and all that stuff, but I was like ravenously hungry <laughs> for the first month I did it. And I did end well, up now, losing a bunch of weight and then I stalled out. But I, you know, that's why I wonder, like, are there hard cases where you really have to be uh, on it 100% or it won't work for you? Well, yeah, the, 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 the challenge I find for a lot of people, especially those of us that are were heav heavily, more heavily overweight, I was ravenously hungry the first month or two I was doing this. That's why people say, you ate a pound okay. of sausage for breakfast? And I said, yes, because I was just ravenously hungry. Well, and that's because my insulin levels were still really high all the time. And I had not keto adapted fully. And it takes uh, some people you know, a month to two months to really keto adapt. And what that means is that it takes you six to eight weeks to upregulate um, the fat absorptive cells, both in the gut and in the cells themselves. So even though you're eating this fat, you can't get the fat into the cell very efficiently. And so you're still hungry. And so in the first three months, I, I usually let people eat all the protein fat they want. I just say, eat, eat what you want, eat till you're full. And, and people will say, I'm, I'm eating 3000 calories, Dr. Manley, but yet they'll lose weight. Now, when they hit month two or three, that weight will probably plateau out. And the reason it plateaus out is because they, their bodies and mine as well became really effective at absorbing fat. Now you've got this huge amount of fat that's being pulled into the, into the bloodstream. And in order for that fat to be used, it's pulled into the, into the fat cell first. And so, and then it gets called out by the liver. Well, if that fat cell never shrinks, because you're constantly putting excess fat into it. That's not a calorie issue. It's a hormone-driven process. If that fat cell never shrinks, that fat cell is overproducing abnormal hormone, causing your hunger to stay high. So you never see the you never see the hunger go down, and then the weight loss plateaus out, and people get discouraged. Well, this doesn't work. I'm, I'm you know, it, it's 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 worthless. Well, what you find is that at that point in time, then you start to start listening to your hormones. Are you really full for? A, are you really wanting to eat a pound of sausage? Are you that hungry? And what I found about two months in was. I'm eating this, but I'm eating it because that was what I always did. And then I realized I'm full at four pieces of sausage. And so I'd stop there. 
And all of a sudden the weight started coming off again. And so you start to realize that if you start listening to the hormone signals in your body, and many of us don't know how to do that. Um, if you start listening to them, once you're fat adapted, then you start realizing I'm actually not that hungry. And I, and I can get away with, you know, two eggs and a piece of piece of bacon and I'm full for 12 hours. Um, but if you're, if, but if we're under a lot of stress or we're, you know, we lack sleep or we, we you know, you, there's a number or we're bored out of our minds. A lot of us listen to those signals more powerfully than the hormone signals for eating. And we end up uh, overeating. And because we're, we, we become really efficient at absorbing fat into the system, our body has to get rid of that fat somehow. So it either pulls it into the fat cell, um, or, or it dumps it. But in many cases, we're so efficient at absorbing fat. And if that insulin level is still high, those fat cells will never shrink and we'll see a plateau in weight loss. So what are other ways in which your hormones will, will whisper to you hunger and what else? So, so what I tell people is, you know, there's really three reasons we eat. We eat because we're truly hungry. We eat because we're bored or we eat because we're, we're, um, uh, we're, we're under a large amount of stress. Stress spikes cortisol. Cortisol raises glucose at the liver. liver the, the elevated glucose spikes insulin and insulin stimulates a, a rebound hunger effect. Um, similarly with uh, boredom, boredom produces uh, neurohormones that make us uh, anxious and irritable, which raises cortisol and does the same thing, spikes that hunger up. So what you have to look at is, you know, one of the things I found was that late at night, um, as I was work, work, working on charts, you know, all of a sudden I'd get this hunger craving at about 9.30 at night. And I thought, why am I hungry at, at 9.30 at night? Because I had this, I had a 12 ounce steak and a salad and I, I should be full. Um, but all of a sudden, nine o'clock, I was hungry. Well, what I found was that for me, it was a trigger because as soon as I would eat, then my parasympathetic nervous system would kick in and I started to get sleepy and I'd go to bed. Well, that was my body's way of saying, hey, you're tired, go to bed. Don't. And, and, and so I got a, a craving to eat. If I found that when I got this craving to eat, I realized, am I actually hungry or am I just tired? And I went to bed, I was fine. And so I actually wasn't hungry. I was just tired and my body was trying to, it was a trigger for me to say, go eat. Cause if you eat something, it's going to put you to sleep and you're actually going to walk up and get in bed. And so you have to look and see is, is, is your hunger a trigger because your body's really wanting you to do something different or is, is, are you truly actually hungry where your body needs fuel? Same thing with stress. Um, a lot of people, you know, in, in my household, when I was growing up, you know, love meant, uh, a large bowl of popcorn, a big Pepsi, and Buck Rogers on TV. And to this day, every time you know nighttime television turns on, I still crave popcorn and Pepsi because that was that was oh, a trigger for. <laughs> yeah, it's a trigger, and and so it was it was a trigger from stress or or hey, love is you know when there's a bowl of popcorn and there's large Pepsi and the TV's on, family's all sitting around. That that was a loving time. And so when you're when you're under stress and you're craving those feelings uh, uh, psychologically you may get triggered to eat food. And so you have to decide, am I actually hungry or am I, is it something else? And so when I sit down and I get that trigger, I know I can pull out pork rinds and, and some sparkling soda and I still get the same, you know, uh, tingle from, from, from the pork rinds and the sparkling soda that I do from uh, Pepsi and the, and the, you know, the chips or the bowl of popcorn. And, and that, those are healthy foods that I can snack on if I'm actually hungry. And I still, and you can still participate in the family activities and things like that and not feel like you're depriving yourself. So you have to look at what are the, what are the signals that are happening there and how do you, how do you, how are you responding to them? You know, are you truly hungry or not? No, that's true. It makes sense. I mean, you know, if you're up late at night, uh, there's a lot of time to get hungry and, uh, you know, I've felt that many, many times. So it makes total sense. Another yeah, thing I realized is if, uh, you're out and about a lot, you know, you're surrounded by fast food and bad food and all that. And I realize it's, it's tiring. You have to make the decision to eat right, you know, three, four or five times a day, every single day of your life. So it can wear on people. 
Well, and the other thing that I find that helps people a lot is I tell them, um, you're going to hit places where, where you're going to feel emotions and stress and you're going to want to eat either because you're hungry or because you're feeling other stress responses or things of that nature. So I tell patients, you know, look at your day tomorrow and decide, okay, if I'm going to be traveling, where am I, where going to be, where am I going to be traveling at? And where am I going to get my fuel for myself? And if I, if I'm in the airport and I'm traveling and all there is, is cookies, what can I do to keep myself from eating the cookies? Well, I carry some macadamia nuts in my bag and I carry some ketones in my bag. Um, and I know that I can go pick up some pork rinds at this restaurant, this, this place here or whatever. So I, I've planned ahead to say, I have some rescue foods in my bag. I know where I can go get food that I can eat. And so if I get a craving, I, I've already pre-planned and written down, I'm going to eat this, this, and this. And then that night I could count to myself, did I do it? And if I didn't do it, I write down, why didn't I do it? And it's a form of cognitive behavioral therapy that you use on yourself to help train yourself to realize I'm, I'm cheating or I'm falling off the wagon because I didn't pre-plan well enough to, 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 to solve those triggers that are very powerful. You know, we have will, our willpower only lasts so long. And if you get multiple triggers throughout the day um, and you run out of that, willpower has a shelf life. And if you run out of it, nobody's going to stop those cravings from getting you to walk over and buy a donut. And so, if you, but if you've planned ahead of time and you know, hey, I'm going to be walking past donuts, but if I, I know I've got macadamia nuts in my bag and I get all of a sudden this trigger to eat, I can reach down and grab a little few macadamia nuts and nibble on those and then all of a sudden my hunger's gone. And so it's, it really just comes down to pre-planning and being accountable to yourself uh, as to why. Yeah, that's a good strategy to take good snacks with you. So when you know when you're in certain environments and it's dangerous, you can, like you said, have uh, some macadamias or whatever it is and uh, stop your cravings. Yeah, yeah, it's just I call them rescue foods. So I tell people, you know, if you have an office and you got a refrigerator, stick some rescue foods in the refrigerator. In my refrigerator right now, there's boiled eggs and and sliced up pepperoni. So if I if I have a rough day at the office or I'm I'm running long and I don't and I miss lunch or something, I have some food in there that I can go reach, reach in and grab and nibble on and, and then go see my next, next patient. Same thing at home. My you know my wife makes she'll have some fat bombs there in the fridge or like last night she made a. a a low carb cheesecake. And so that's sitting in there. And last night when I was up late working on charts and I got that hunger craving, but I couldn't go to bed. I had to finish the charts. I went in and got a low carb piece of cheesecake and, and nibbled on it. You know, and that, that satiated me and got me through until I could finish up the charting and go to bed. So you just have to have a, have those rescue foods there or a little pre-planning to know, um, okay, I, if, when I get these cravings, cause they're going to come no matter what, what, what do you do to solve that problem? Yeah. That, well, that brings up something else. What about those foods that are called keto foods, you know, or, or protein cookies or, you know, low carb cheesecake, that kind of stuff. Do you think that they're okay or they, they'll just, you know, are you just fooling yourself by having them? Well, not all keto foods are created equal. That's one of the challenges that a lot of my, that, that I found and a lot of my patients found, um, you know, a lot of low, low carb companies with good intentions are trying to make um, you know, fast options for people, number one. And, and then number two, they're, they're, you know, they're profiting off of producing a product, which as an entrepreneur, I totally understand that. Um, but what you have to recognize is that um, a lot of the sweeteners that a lot of people are using and, and, you know, bless their hearts, some of these companies don't recognize a lot of sweeteners spike insulin without raising blood sugar. And that was one of the things I found. And so there's a whole chapter in my book dedicated to, you know, what sweeteners can you use and which ones should you avoid like the plague? Um, because uh, you know, certain sweeteners will spike that insulin and be be, be worse than drinking a, a fully leaded Coke or, you know, eating that ding dong. And so even though you're eating a low carb yeah. food that's supposed to be good. Oh, yeah. Even though you're eating low carb food that's supposed to be good for you, your insulin spikes and you just gained weight from that. So 
um, you know, one of the things that I find myself is that when I'm at conferences is I'm always checking the back of labels, looking at, okay, what sweeteners are they using and um, what other products are in that, that food that may actually have a hormone signal to my body. Um, you know, one of the things that I found with a number of my patients was they'd lose some weight and then they'd plateau out. I had one guy that, that, you know, called me all the way from over from England and he said, doc, you know, I lost 25 pounds, but I, I can't get the weight to move. And I've been doing this for nine months and I, I am just stalled. And we went through his diet and his, his diet was great. You know, he's doing great. And I said, are you drinking anything? What are you drinking? And he goes, oh, I just have iced tea. And I said, okay, but what kind of tea? He says, oh, I have nine 32 ounce glasses of black tea. And I went, okay. Jeez. So I, I actually looked up black tea and realized that back in the 50s and 60s, physicians were looking at using black tea, green tea, and oolong tea to treat diabetes because there's a tannin in the leaf-based black, green, and oolong teas that spikes insulin. So this guy's having nine huge glasses of tea every day, spiking his insulin, doing the same thing eating a donut would have done, and he can't lose weight. And so I told him, cut out your tea, and all of a sudden he dropped 30 pounds. Um, because this tea was driving that process. So, um, you know, there, there are things in foods that we don't realize are spiking insulin and these other hormones that when, once we recognize that, all of a sudden you, you see some improve, you see dramatic improvement. And so it really is, you know, the stuff we put in our bodies are driving those hormone changes. Um, the so problem is we really need, uh, we really need a continuous ketone monitor or even better yet, a continuous insulin monitor. We really need that. And the thinking because is not even aware of it, it seems like. So it's it's bad. It's hard. You have all these hidden things in food, like you're saying. Yeah, and then if there was if there was a continuous insulin monitor, I'd be wearing one myself. That that would be great. I just the, the, when I've looked into how do you know how do you make one? They're expensive, and I just haven't had the time or the energy to do it. So, and I know people have looked at it. And if you guys can, if you guys, if your audience is finding one of those, I'd love to. I'd love to wear one. But um, you know, yeah, in, in agree. That, that's the, that that would be a big solution for at least the first step in, in weight loss. Well, what, all right, so what's some of your insights? You know, you said some of the, um, you know, the, the non-sugar sugars spike insulin. So can you name a few that do and ones that don't? Oh yeah. Um, you know, all of the, all of the new sweeteners, they just switched over from, you know, aspartame got a bad name because of its, its effect on, on uh, rats and things of that nature. Um, we know that aspartame, as an obesity doc, aspartame actually suppresses appetite. So we, we would use a lot of aspartame for uh, helping people to push their cravings down. But what we've found in the last year is that aspartame, um, although it doesn't spike insulin initially, aspartame causes insulin resistance in the gut bacteria and, and prolongs that higher fasting sugar uh, for a long period of time. And in me, it actually kept it high for about 16 weeks until I stopped using aspartame. Um, when they started replacing aspartame in most of the other diet sodas, they switched to something called a sulfame potassium or ACE-K. Well, a sulfame potassium has an identical insulin response to a tablespoon of sugar. So if you're, you know, if you switch out table sugar in your, in your diet Pepsi to aspartame, you're not giving yourself any benefit there. Um, and most of the diet sodas uh, and diet drinks switched over to using aspartame. Um, the, the, the sugar alcohols have been around for a long time and a lot of people have trouble tolerating some of the sugar alcohols because they cause gastrointestinal gymnastics when you drink them or eat them. Um, yeah. But uh, but they the most of them will have some degree of an insulin response, like xylitol, maltitol, mannitol. These all spike insulin. The only one that doesn't is erythritol. Uh, but erythritol has a funny aftertaste, and so a lot of people won't use it alone. Um, you know, monk fruit's a big one in the keto world. A lot of people are going, oh yeah, use monk fruit. Well, monk fruit is fructose, and fructose is 
fructose mm. is metabolized at the liver and you don't see a glucose rise initially, nor do you see an insulin rise. Fructose is metabolized identically to alcohol. And so three to six hours later, you'll see insulin spike and triglycerides spike when you process fructose or alcohol in the liver. And so a lot of people say, oh, that doesn't raise my insulin. Well, not initially, no, but it will raise your insulin three or four hours later. And so that, that's where a lot of the products that are using monk fruit, because uh, monk fruit kicks me out of ketosis three hours later every time. Um, so so oh. those are some sweeteners that you may be seeing. So, and there's a, there's a whole chapter in, in my book on, on, you know, all of them that, we've, that are out there right now. And that, that was one of the reasons I, I wrote it was because I would you know, put people on a diet and all of a sudden they're, they're weighted to plateau. And I, as we went very carefully with a fine tooth comb through their diet and what they were drinking, we found out, hey, you're using the sweetener, let's remove it. And all of a sudden they, they start seeing weight loss again. Hmm. It's more complicated than anyone thinks. And then if you- oh, it's, uh, it's complex. If you eat at home, I mean, you have much more of a chance of controlling this stuff. But if you eat out at restaurants a lot, I mean, have you done any experimentation there? To see what oh, absolutely. Are, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I love hamburgers. And so every burger joint in town I've been to and, and you know, done a lettuce wrap burger. And, and one of the challenges that I found with, with a lot of the restaurants is that, you know, a lot of them will use American cheese and American cheese has enough lactose in it that it will kick me out of ketosis. So I have to have them leave the American cheese off. A lot of people just say, oh, yeah, put the cheese on. Cheese is great. But if it's American cheese, um, it's still got some lactose in it and it still spikes my, my, my insulin. Um, you know, uh, a lot of restaurants, I, when I go out to eat, I, I'm, I'm real bland. I just say, I want a piece of meat and I want a, a leafy green salad and I want a full fat dressing. Um, you know, leave off the croutons, those kind of things. But if, uh, I find that anything that's been pre-prepared or, or, uh, things like that, a lot of, a lot of sauces have sugar in them that you're unaware of. A lot of barbecue sauces, they load up with sugar. So if I go out for barbecue, I have to have them put the sauce on the side. Cause I know there's probably 20 grams of carbs in that barbecue sauce. Mm. And if they slather it over your ribs, you know, you, you, that may very well push you out of ketosis as well. So you have to be cautious with sauces, cautious with dressings, cautious with the cheeses that they're using. Um, and, you know, and any bread like, you know, meatball, meatballs. We had a, a rep bring in meatballs yesterday and most most companies make meatballs with um, uh, breadcrumbs. And so, you know, you, you eat, I eat the meatballs and three, two hours, an hour and a half after I eat, all of a sudden I want to lay down and take a nap because my blood sugar just spiked and my insulin went up. Because I ate some meatballs that had breadcrumbs in them. And so, you know, if, unless they're keto made, or made with like a, a mozzarella cheese or something like that, you got to be careful with, with some of those other things like that. Hmm. Right. Um, any distinction between organic or, you know, run of the mill meats? Or is that. Uh, you know, or, organic yeah. is a term that I think is hi highly abused. Um, it, 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 most, most companies can slap organic on it if, they're, if they had a, if the cow's not actually in a stall all day long. Um, and he walked outside once or twice. There's there's some there's some definitions to organic that I I really am not so excited about. So I, I find that to be honest, the challenge I find with a lot of people is a lot of people are on a budget, and so for them to go shop at you know the, the more expensive Trader Joe's or Sprouts and 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 pay for the higher expense more expensive organic meats doesn't really do them much good. So if they're I tell them if if you have access to a farmer's market, use it. Um, you know if you have access to a family member who you, know, you can buy, you know, meat from great, you know, we, we have chickens in our backyard. We were able to do that. I know a lot of people can't do that, but we do. And so we, we, our chickens free range our entire backyard. And so we have our own eggs that are, that are actually amazing when you let your chickens free range. Um, if you don't have that, I still have patients that do really well, even though they don't have access to that. So you don't necessarily have to do organic. You don't have to do the free range stuff. You can get away with you know, just the stuff you buy at your neighborhood grocery store. If you're really trying to, you know, be a, um, a 
you know, a purist about it, then yeah, of course you want to, you want to look for the, the better meats and the, the grass fed meats and the, you know, the, the, the animals that were able to free range to pick their own diet. You're going to see higher levels of omega three, omega three fatty acids in those, and you're going to get a better product, but not everybody has the access to that. So I tell people, I'm not so worried about you, you know, picking grass fed or, or range, range fed foods as much as I am picking the right food to start with. And then if you start seeing that you need some changes, then we can, you know, if your budget allows for that, then let's, let's look for those uh, foods that you can, you can incorporate there as well. But if people start eating real food, you know, I tell people, if it's in the center aisle of the grocery store, you should not be buying it. I tell them if any food, if, it, if it's ketogenic, you bought it from the periphery of the grocery store, except the bakery. So if you walk that's the true. peripheral edge of your grocery store, that's all ketogenic food, except the bakery. Um, if you bought stuff mm. in the middle of the grocery store, that is not ketogenic. It's going to kick you out every time. Um, have you experienced any patients where you just couldn't get them results or is that really rare or it, you just attribute that to, we didn't find something that was going on that, that was causing the problem? Well, like I said, step number one is lowering the insulin. And then when the, those people, I don't see success. Step number two is the next step is the thyroid. They're usually have a thyroid issue. So we fix the thyroid. If we fix the thyroid and fix the insulin, they're still having problems. And the next step is testosterone, progesterone, and estrogen. That's then that's what my talk at the Metalog Summit was about is that oftentimes that's the third step is you got to fix the male and female hormones. Those have to be fixed. Um, and once you fix those, once those are balanced, then the next step is looking at your stress levels, your, your sleep responses, um, you know, things of that nature, because those play a big role in regards to your overall uh, success. And um, so that's, that's important. So that's step number four is, you know, addressing the stress, the exercise, those kind of things. Some people um, still, then we got to go on to the next step, you know, with, uh, with a, a few other fine tuning pieces. But, you know, step number one is the insulin, step two, the thyroid, step three, male and female hormones. I, I, I have yet to have a patient that hasn't had success when we, when we fix uh, each of those steps. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good to know. Because I'm sure there's there's plenty of people out there that, you know, they think they're doing the right thing, but it's not working for them how they want and they're frustrated. So it's good. Oh to yeah. A lot of people show up. Of what's a lot of people. Yeah. A lot of people show up on my doorstep saying, I've been doing this for six months, Dr. Allen, it doesn't work. And, and your keto thing's crazy. And so when I actually start walking through with them, are you doing this? Are you doing this? They go, no, I'm not doing that. No, I'm not doing that. And it, we get to educate them that, Hey, this is, this is why you're not seeing success because you're still spiking your insulin because you were misinformed. I mean, there's a bunch of so-called keto experts out there that claim they know what they're talking about and they don't. Um, and they're, they're, they're popular, they blog and they do a lot of stuff, but yet they're causing people not to be successful. And so, um, you know, my, my, my mantra is don't take any advice from a keto expert unless that keto expert is responsible for helping you fix the failure when you fail. So uh, mm. if they're not responsible for your success or your failure, you need to be talking to somebody else. Okay. Well, very good. So um, last question, and I'll, I'll ask you to give some resources for listeners. What, what do you see as the near-term future of, you know, keto and dieting, uh, you know, let's say over the next you know, three to five years, anything coming that you're interested in or excited about? Well, you know, the, the, one of the things that people are seeing success with is, is fasting and intermittent fasting. And, and, um, you know, and that, that's kind of taken on a, on a whole uh, mantra of its own. Um, I find that if you're doing a ketogenic diet correctly, you, you have periods of natural fasting. Fasting itself stimulates periods of ketosis. And so you're, you're basically addressing a lot of the same hormones that a ketogenic lifestyle or diet does as well. And what I find is a lot of people, are, if they understand how to do keto correctly, they're, you're, they're, they're, you're kind of blending a ketogenic diet and fasting together correctly. Um, I think that's the first thing is we'll, we're going to learn a lot more about you know what those two pieces do together. Second thing that I'm seeing is a lot of people that were paleo are now jumping on the keto bandwagon. So 
uh, one of the things I'm finding a challenge with is that these paleo people are bringing their dogmas to the keto world and it's starting to, to make it difficult. And so you're starting to hear thousands of different voices hmm. preaching different things. And so I think it's important to understand um, if you're going to do a ketogenic diet, understand what you're addressing, understand a little bit of the science about it if you can. Um, and if you're and if you're confused, talk to somebody who understands and knows what they're talking about um, and can hmm. explain why they're doing it. Um, a lot of people will tell you to do something, but they don't they won't know why. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. that's that's one of the things you want to address. I, I think I, I hope in the near future we're going to see some some better monitoring like uh, insulin monitors, ketone monitors, things like that. That will give us a little more real time ability to look into the body and what it's doing. So I think those are some things coming down the road. Okay. And then resources for listeners. Can you restate the title of your book and then your website? You know, how can they find out more? Oh, yeah. So the title of the book is The Keto Cure. Uh, you can find it on Amazon. If uh, You can go to my website at docmuscles.com. That's D-O-C-M-U-S-C-L-E-S.com. Um, we, uh, we, we offer it there, too. Um, I, on my website, um, the links to the, to the podcast that we did with Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore are there. Um, I've got I, I've done probably 400 different Facebook lives and Instagram lives that are there's links on the website there under Doc Muscles Live. They can go and watch literally four or five years of, of, of uh, Facebook lives that are there talking about different points of this and uh, answering tons of questions. Um, and, and then I, I have some programs on the DocMuscles.com site for patients that can't get out to Arizona to see me. There's some some resources there that they can go through some programs uh, with me with me that way. So. Um, so that, that would be just go to docmuscles.com and all that stuff's there. All right, that's great. Adam, I really appreciate you coming and all your wisdom. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great. Hopefully your listeners benefit and, and uh, we'll have to talk some more. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues where we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.